Hello and welcome to the Conservative Resurgence Voices podcast. I'm Jeff Wright, one of the contributors to the CRV website, and I'm here with Chris Bolt. Chris is a pastor, husband and father, academic and Southern Baptist. He's also the founder of the CRV website. Chris, it's good to talk to you. How are you and your loved ones doing? We are doing well. Uh, We're blessed. Praise the Lord. Well, so we we want to launch this podcast with a discussion about why a podcast. But I think the prior question there is, why did you launch the CRV website? So could you fill us in on how how the site came to be? Yeah, um, Conservative Resurgence Voices is a website to uh, not only promote conservative principles in terms of the principles themselves, but also to revisit some of the history of the so-called conservative resurgence and also to understand it uh, as as applicable or not to uh, current circumstances going on in the Southern Baptist Convention, going on in the culture around us and whatnot. Um, so. CRV is essentially based on this premise that the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention, the theological principles of the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention are principles that are worth retrieving, uh, principles that are worth repeating, principles that are worth redeeming. So in that sense, a conservative resurgence is never something that actually ends uh, for theological conservatives. I I guess I should mention that the conservative resurgence was a period of time in the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I'm going to quote uh, Albert Moeller on this, actually. R. Albert Moeller Jr. wrote, America's largest evangelical denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was reshaped, reformed, and restructured over the last three decades and at an incredibly high cost. And so that's the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist Convention. It was also called the fundamentalist takeover uh, by its detractors. And so it's this large, successful, or largely successful grassroots effort effort on the part of theological conservatives in the SBC to pull that uh, that group of churches and, and that convention back away from theological liberalism. Uh, it, was, it was a takeover in a sense because uh, it moved through the institutions and took them back for the cause of biblical inerrancy and for the fundamentals of the faith. And so CRV is essentially saying, uh, we want to stand on these principles still. Uh, we want to not forget what what has been done um, so that uh, we can we can keep conservative. Uh, this will be a battle until the end, as it were. We're not guaranteed that things will, st- you know, it's it's like we win uh, this war. Uh, some people are not comfortable with that language, but that's often language used in scripture. It's like we win this war and then everything is hunky-dory until the end. That's not how things work. Uh, that's not how things work even over the period of, say, a decade. There's a lot of work that goes into maintaining uh, this commitment to God's word, to its authority, to its inerrancy, to its sufficiency. Well, just to tease out some of the stuff you've already kind of put on the table there, when we look back at the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention, it seems in hindsight, as someone who wasn't really alive uh, in those days, or at least old enough to be active, even aware, uh, in hindsight, it seems like inerrancy was the focal point, crux issue that created a crisis in the Southern Baptist Convention that conservatives, like you said, on the grassroots level, uh, not apart from institutional leaders, but from the grassroots decided we're, we're going to have to fight this. And so if we're trying to continue and stand in the tradition, uh, even redeem the tradition, as you've mentioned, uh, as Southern Baptists in 
2020, what are the issues that are challenging the denomination today uh, as you understand them? Yeah, well, as I understand it, I don't believe that the Southern Baptist Convention, and there are people who would disagree with me for sure, but uh, I don't believe that the Southern Baptist Convention is in the same place that it was at the time of uh, the first formal um, conservative resurgence. So what I mean by that is this. It seems to be the case that overwhelmingly uh, in our major institutions and entities in the Southern Baptist Convention, we do have people who are committed to uh, the principles and theological uh, parameters that are set forth in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which was itself a result of the conservative resurgence. Uh, there were some edits made to that document in 2000 that more clearly defined our understanding of the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the family, uh, the pastorate. And so I don't believe that we're necessarily in the same place we were uh, so long ago because there are people uh, in these entities and leading these entities who are committed to that document, committed to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, committed to uh, the fundamentals of the faith and, and these sorts of things. Um, however, uh, as I've already mentioned, it's it's very uh, easy to lose those commitments or to assume those commitments or to pay lip service to those commitments and then lose them in their actual practice. And so I would agree with those who believe that the sufficiency of Scripture is an area that we need to be focused upon right now, in particular when we're looking at uh, the various cultural cues around us and how they are pressing themselves in upon upon uh, the church, in upon evangelicalism, in upon the Southern Baptist Convention. And so it's very, very easy to practice what I call apologetics by accommodation, to try to make our Christian faith more palatable to the unbeliever in such a way that we end up actually sacrificing the tenets that we set out to defend in the first place. This is actually where theological liberalism of the older variety, this is actually where that comes from uh, to begin with. <laughs> These people were apologists for the Christian faith. They were trying to make Christianity more palatable to the unbeliever. And in doing so, they wound up redefining Scripture, redefining the terms. So they would use some of the same terms as Christianity, but read in a different meaning. And they would wind up uh, eventually rejecting the inerrancy of Scripture uh, and losing the gospel itself, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Uh, they would end up losing that because of their tendency to want to uh, please others and to make the faith more palatable to others by practicing apologetics by accommodation. As far as the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, where it's concerned and, and some of the different things I see pressing in upon it, I think there are three areas that we should be concerned about. They're all interrelated, and there are other issues related to these as well, so I'm not being exhaustive here. But I think the three areas that we need to be concerned about at the moment, uh, doctrinally speaking, uh, are the issue of, of the, the roles of men and women in the church, in the home, in society. And so we often see these terms like uh, patriarchy thrown around or complementarianism, egalitarianism. Uh, we want to make Make sure that we are committed to the Bible's presentation of creation order uh, and how those all fall out, even through a biblical theological framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but uh, certainly systematically in terms of their practical import for our homes and our churches and society, but also uh, just in terms of what the text itself says. There are very clear texts, for example, the Baptist faith and message uh, limits the office of pastor to men and the 
the reason that it does that, the proof text that it provides, uh, is from First Timothy, where it says that uh, a woman should not, um, you know, exercise authority over a man, should not teach a man. I'm paraphrasing that. The other area I think we need to be concerned about is uh, the issue of race. Now, here again, the Baptist faith and message is clear uh, where we stand on this topic. Uh, we are to oppose racism in all its forms, and that's grounded in the uh, scripture. What scripture says about um, partiality and the sin of partiality. But there are, once again, secular ideologies that press in upon the church with regard to a topic like that. And so this brings us to the topic of things like critical race theory, critical theory, uh, which are not biblical frameworks, and they are actually contradictory to many of the things that are essential to the gospel and the biblical narrative. And so I think that we should be very concerned about that, actually. Um, not because we're racist, but because we want to make sure that what we're saying about the problems we see in society and what we're saying about the solutions to those problems are based in and grounded in the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of God's Word, and not in something that comes from outside of that and is not consistent with it. And then the other uh, major issue, I think, is the issue of um, of homosexuality and, and what all that entails. And so we live in a culture where uh, same-sex marriage, where same-sex attraction, homosexuality, these are words that we see thrown around a lot. These are uh, movements that we see permeating society. And within evangelicalism, we've actually seen the redefinition of some terms, as well as uh, the promotion of a weaker type, seemingly, of these movements. So what we get now uh, are people who will say without hesitation that homosexuality sin, perhaps that same-sex attraction is sin, but then they'll carve out some space for saying things like, nevertheless, uh, you could label yourself a gay Christian, or you could say that there's same-sex aesthetic attraction as opposed to same-sex sexual attraction. And what they wind up doing is making uh, some space for those who would w wish to identify or conceive of themselves in these terms as a gay Christian, uh, I think that this is uh, also a, a very dangerous area to, to go. Uh, and something that we should be concerned about. That last one hasn't hit the Southern Baptist Convention so much yet, uh, but we do need to be on guard about that because what happens over time is that people who confess all of the conservative uh, check boxes, they'll they'll check off the boxes, and then they'll also uh, be be uh, modifying what they've said on the other side to placate a, a wider audience. In fact, this is why uh, many say that the Southern Baptist Convention slid into liberalism at the get-go uh, in the last century. Uh, E.Y. Mullins was the president of Southern Baptist, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he knew how to play the conservative game, and he knew how to play the good old boys network, and the churches loved him. And while he was uh, teaching and, and uh, submitting this conservative-looking theology at the same time, uh, he was pushing more of a liberal approach to things, theologically speaking. And so that opened the door to moving further and further left. Three things that really brought uh, some of this out for me and made me aware that we may be dealing with some difficulties here. The first was seeing what happened on the floor of the Presbyterian Church of America General Assembly 
Um, what happened there is that there was a, a motion to commend the Nashville statement on sexuality, and uh, there was a, a big fight <laughs> that broke out. Uh, not not to say that they were signing on to it, not to say that they were adopting it. It was nothing like that. It was simply a motion to uh, to commend this document, uh, which that document many have seen it as being contradictory to what is taught by the Revoice uh, Conference which is this uh, gay Christian conference, uh, like I was alluding to earlier. And uh, when that when that came to the floor, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of debate on it. And what I saw there was a lot of rhetoric that I last saw uh, at a liberal institution that I had attended. And so it was very much emotions-based. Uh, it was very much about subjectivity, not about objectivity. And it was certainly pressing leftward and not to the right. And uh, so I was, I was really concerned about that as well as the fact that the vote uh, came out and they did vote to commend the statement. Nevertheless, uh, it wasn't by much <laughs> that they did so. And the vote fell out along generational lines with the younger generation voting against commending that statement. Now, I know that there were more reasons than one to vote against that statement. I understand that. Nevertheless, particularly the rhetoric that was used there uh, was very concerning. The second thing that happened is I was speaking to an older Southern Baptist pastor uh, who was around during the conservative resurgence, and uh, we were in the middle of another conversation, and he changed the subject, and he said, Chris, have you seen uh, The Battle for the Minds? And I had. I told him I watched that uh, in the basement of Southern Seminary, actually. And he said, well, when did you do that? And I said, I don't know, 2011 or so, 2010 or 11. And he said, I want you to go back and watch that again. So I did. I watched it that night. And I was amazed at how similar the rhetoric was back then. Uh, the Battle for the Minds is a documentary that was published by the liberal faction of the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's mostly about uh, the takeover of Southern Seminary by Al Mohler and the conservatives. And when you watch that documentary, the rhetoric that's used is almost exactly the same rhetoric that's being used now by those who are within the Southern Baptist Convention and are accusing others of being divisive and troublemakers and the like. This language of this is not really about conservatism. This is about politics. This is about right wing uh, ideology. This is about nationalism. All those sorts of terms were thrown about by the liberals during the conservative resurgence and particularly during the takeover of Southern Seminary. Um, not only that, Molly Marshall was kind of the figurehead of that liberal resistance there. And uh, one of the main issues that you see come up in that documentary is the issue that I mentioned earlier of the role of women in the church, uh, whether or not women can serve as pastors, whether or not women can teach men. Now, we have a lot of people in the Southern Baptist Convention who say that they are fully on board with women not serving as pastors uh, in, in churches because that's what the Bible teaches. Nevertheless, they use the same rhetoric. They use the same hermeneutic. They use the same thoughts uh, about all of these topics topics as the egalitarians did then. And so that was very eye-opening as well. And then third, um, if you have not seen the Evergreen documentaries, uh, you need to go watch those. In these Evergreen documentaries, what we see is critical theory, critical race theory being taught on this very progressive college campus. And basically what happens is when the rubber meets the road, 
this critical theory tears that institution all to pieces. It just becomes this mob rule. Uh, there's no control. There's no authority that's recognized anymore. Uh, it's identity politics uh, come to its own. And at the time of this recording, of course, some of these things uh, seem like not that big of a deal to me in light of what's happening around our nation. At the time of this recording, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And right now we're seeing major rioting uh, taking place throughout the United States of America. There, there is peaceful protesting. Uh, there has, uh, There is injustice that has taken place. But we're also seeing, I believe, um, some of this critical theory that's been taught in our institutions for years, and the rubber has hit the road, and we are all evergreen now. Mm. You know, Chris, in the time that I've worked with you on this site, the the things that actually stand out to me that you have particularly highlighted, uh, one, the, the parallels you've drawn with Mullins, um, this is my term. I don't want to assign it to you, so feel free to push back. But his conciliatory posture towards uh, what we would say is less helpful theological positions, having uh, you know, having have, having a historical parallel for our own moment, I found that very provocative. And the point you just made about the Battle for the Minds documentary. Uh, basically cataloging and, and documenting the exact kind of rhetoric we're hearing uh, coming from a certain wing of Southern Baptists today. And I, I just personally want to thank you for that. But then, too, I also kind of want to help anyone listening here who, who find those ideas intriguing the way that I have find them. So first, have you written on the Mullins parallels? And if so, where? And if not, why not? Get on that. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't believe that I've written on the Mullins parallels yet. Um, I would love to have somebody who's more uh, historically inclined to do so. Uh, but I do hope to take that up at some point in the future. I did write a series at the site um, about what I call the new liberalism. And uh, that is essentially uh, a meditation on uh, J. Gresham Machen's uh, Christianity and liberalism. And he was Presbyterian. Uh, the Presbyterians preceded the Southern Baptist Convention in going through uh, something very similar as far as uh, fighting against liberalism in their denomination uh, and forming new denominations based on that. Um, and Machen in that book is not so much saying that there was liberalism in his denomination, and he was not so much saying, here is why liberalism is wrong, as he was saying, here is why Christianity, orthodox, ancient, historic Christianity, is different from liberal Christianity or liberal theology. They are not the same religion. Uh, they're not grounded in the same thing. They don't have the same things falling out from them. And so my concern is— um, with something like what you call the conciliatory uh, type stance or posture, uh, and with you know a figure like E.Y. Mullins, uh, with taking that sort of approach to coddling the culture uh, today, um, my concern there is very much the same as as his was that we don't end up undermining the theological truths of Scripture uh, by what we're doing methodologically. And it is very, very easy uh, for that to happen, for us to get so sure of ourselves in our conservatism and our commitment to inerrancy that we wind up doing things that are actually inconsistent with that belief. And so whereas 
in his day, uh, they were facing things like uh, neo-Darwinian biological uh, macroevolutionary biology. Uh, and they were, you know, they're trying to figure out how is it that Genesis 1 through 11 uh, match up to modern science and this sort of thing. And they were trying to appease uh, people in that regard. Whereas in that day, it was dealing with those sorts of things, what, what have been called before the hard sciences. What we are facing today is how Scripture meshes with the so-called soft sciences, hmm. uh, sociological and psychological uh, supposed insights uh, into the world around us. And so, it's not that we're opposed to general revelation. Uh, that is uh, a straw man, I believe, of the conservative position. Uh, it's not that we're opposed to general revelation and to the insights that we gain from God's world around us, from nature and that sort of thing. But it is the case that uh, we can take what we believe are insights, which are actually very heavily presuppositionally loaded, uh, we can take those insights sometimes and try to force them back into Scripture such that it gets redefined. And even uh, uh, tinkering with some of what we would consider the non-essentials of the Christian faith with what today people are calling tertiary and secondary matters of the Christian faith, by tinkering with those, the core doctrines, the essentials of Christianity do not go unharmed. Uh, if, if you can figure out a way to wedge secular ideologies into the supposed tertiary and secondary uh, doctrines of the Christian faith, then you'll you'll find that very quickly the core doctrines will collapse uh, as well. And so you wind up redefining your terms. We're seeing this now, just as an example, the term reparations. Well, there is uh, a scriptural sense of reparations. So you, in in repentance, uh, in asking someone's forgiveness, you are taking that posture uh, of wanting to make something right with someone. But that, I would argue, is very, very different from many of the different political approaches to this top topic of uh, reparations and what all that means and what all that would look like. And so what you'll find as people are equivocating between those different uses. And so they're actually redefining scriptural terms and filling them up with, uh, with ideas that come from secular sociology. Uh, the same thing with a uh, biblical category of oppressor and oppressed. We see those categories in scripture, but they're very, very different from what we find in Marxist thought, uh, very, very different from what we find in critical theory. I'm not going to go into all the different ways. I mean, that's what we write about on the side and whatnot. But uh, you, you see this happening again and again. I mean, to the extent where you get something like the gospel, and, and the Apostle Paul gives us a very basic framework of what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15. He defines it. Uh, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead uh, for our sins. And so you look at that and you understand, okay, this is according to the scriptures. He says that repeatedly in that text. This is according to the scriptures. So Paul's understanding of Jesus, Paul's understanding of sin, Paul's understanding of death, his understanding of resurrection, uh, his understanding of what faith is, receiving Christ, these are all defined for him within a particular view of the world, which is this Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. The gospel is not God protecting the vulnerable. That's not the uh, core of the gospel. Now, do I believe that God has his uh, eye of favor turned toward the vulnerable, the, the oppressed, the widows, the orphaned? Yes, we, we read that over and over again in Scripture. But what language like that that I just mentioned is doing is it's actually redefining the gospel in terms of an overarching victimology. Do I believe that there are real victims? Absolutely. But again, 
again, that the gospel is addressing how can sinful people be made right with a holy God. And that happens through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. By the way, something I didn't address earlier and I do need to address, these theologically conservative principles are not at all opposed to and in fact entail a moral commitment to rid ourselves of the sin of partiality, which we can understand in some contexts as racism. Uh, it can also be understood as ageism and uh, you know, a classist understanding of things and all of that. Uh, and also, we are. Uh, it entails us ridding ourselves of things like abuse. Uh, we've seen some instances of pastoral abuse uh, in our convention, and it's not that we don't want to talk about those things. It's not that uh, we are overlooking those things, but those tend to be more moral in nature than doctrinal in nature. And what we're saying is, if you want the best approach to these very topics, uh, these various aspects of morality, we need to start with Scripture and understand the doctrine, because right thinking about God and His world and us leads to right living, and that is good for us. Well said, sir, and I appreciate you laying it out for us. Uh, Listener, if you aren't familiar or haven't read Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, I would encourage you to pick that up. Um, Chris rightly draws on it as a historical precedent, I think, and I find myself recommending that book more and more. I think it bears up over the, the years and has much to say here. Uh, Chris, I sent you a list of questions before we got started here. And the third question I sent was, uh, would you say we need a new conservative resurgence and why? I I take it from what you've answered so far, though, and and I'm persuaded that this is a it's an ongoing process. It it never really comes to completion. And therefore, uh, a new one doesn't necessarily arise because we're kind of always this side of eternity in the current one. So if I can modify that, and I know I'm catching you cold on this, what do you think it looks like to give yourself as a Southern Baptist to faithfully working for uh, the preservations of conservative theology uh, in our day? Because, and and to give some context, we kind of know the methodology of the the conservative resurgence in the past, right? They turned out to annual meetings, and they, they gathered buses, and people slept in churches, and they went for you know, presidents who could appoint board positions, that may still be on the table. But what else would you say if you gave our listeners a vision for being faithful as a Southern Baptist now? Yeah, I I do think that it's ongoing, as you mentioned. Uh, Jude, the third verse, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so I don't think this thing will fade away uh, until Christ returns. Ultimately, it won't fade away. We'll constantly be uh, addressing uh, new manifestations of the very old uh, rejection of God that occurred first in the garden in Genesis 3. Uh, as far as methodology, I mean, really, that was one of the things that the site was set up to kind of feel out and address. Um, there are a number of different uh, things that go into this. So I think that initially what was happening in the Southern Baptist Convention today 
is that uh, it was very, very easy to put down this idea that there were any concerns at all. Because when you look across the board, again, uh, our entities are being led by people who affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, who affirm the fundamentals of the faith, who affirm the doctrine of inerrancy. Well, that's akin to putting down concerns about uh, Roman Catholicism by appealing to those things we hold in common with them. So a person could say, well, what's wrong with Roman Catholicism? After all, they believe in the Trinity. They believe in the person of Christ, uh, that he is divine and human. Uh, those two natures are united there in that one person, Jesus Christ. Uh, they might even say, well, yes, Roman Catholics believe that salvation is by faith. Well, that uh, it sounds good on the surface until you dig down into those and you realize uh, that there's a vast difference between what Protestants and Protestant theology uh, and Roman Catholics believe on something like the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so you can focus on the places where these various uh, sects and denominations and whatnot agree. You can focus on these supposed agreements, or you can look at the disagreements. And so when you look at something like what's going on today, we're not seeing, in most cases, an outright denial of the doctrine of inerrancy. What we are seeing are vast differences in methodology and the way that we would approach uh, the culture. And this is not just something I'm making up. This is not just something that I'm fabricating. Uh, You may recall Al Mohler being uh, given some difficult questions at Shepherd's Conference several years ago. Uh, It was this now infamous panel, essentially, panel discussion that took place. And they were pressing Al Mohler on issues of social justice uh, and this sort of thing and asking him if he saw concerns there. If you listen to the way that Al Mohler answers, and there's actually a post about this on the website, uh, Mohler answers and says that inerrancy is not the issue, that there's a difference, though, that there are concerns, that there's a difference in methodology. Uh, When you then listen to Tom Nettles, uh, who is a well-respected professor of uh, history, he's now retired, uh, but he taught at Southern Seminary for years. He was one of those leading the older conservative resurgence. Uh, When you listen to what he is concerned about in his part, his contribution to the founders' uh, synodoc by what standard, he says almost the exact same thing as Al Mohler. He says, you know, back during the conservative resurgence, we uh, we could easily identify what the issue was. It was inerrancy. And we could identify those who affirmed it or denied it. He said, this one's a little bit harder to articulate because these people affirm inerrancy. They affirm the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. They affirm these things while nevertheless, uh, they're, they're given over to some of these uh, traditionally leftist and secular ways of thinking about things. Now, I'm definitely paraphrasing him there. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and, and read that post because uh, I do transcribe what was said by each of those individuals. Um, but I think methodologically, initially with our website, what we were trying to do is to kind of carve out space for us to be able to talk about, hey, there are concerns here. Uh, we have good reason to be concerned, both in terms of principle, that this is a battle we'll fight until Jesus returns, but also in terms of some of the particulars of what is going on. And so you'll notice that the site draws fairly heavily from uh, well-respected individuals within the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in order to, to draw on their insight 
insights into what exactly is going on. Now, I say all of this because I think that it's actually considered uh, safer now, even at this point, almost a year later, it's considered safer to question uh, whether or not there are some issues going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think that some of these things have come to the surface uh, much more since the time that we've started the site. But the site is meant to be uh, not to shift the Overton window through radical claims. Uh, the The purpose of the site methodologically is not to tear down our institutions or the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, our site is geared toward uh, drawing us even closer towards Scripture and, and basing our uh, cooperative body on Scripture, being faithful to the inerrancy of Scripture, but also the sufficiency of Scripture uh, as it applies to the various uh, other things. Of course, we want to focus on, first and foremost, our own families, our own lives, and our own families, as well as our own churches, uh, in terms of uh, the right preaching of the Word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right um, uh, practice of church discipline. But we're also uh, in cooperation with other Southern Baptist churches, other autonomous Southern Baptist churches, but we rally around that confessional document. Um, So I think that a big part of this, too, then, is to be confessional. Uh, When you look at discernment bloggers, when you look at uh, those who are criticizing the Southern Baptist Convention, often those criticisms come not in terms of, here's where this matches up to Scripture or diverges from it. Uh, it. It doesn't come in terms of, here's where this matches up to this confession or diverges from it. Usually the criticism comes in terms of, this person or this institution is not meeting up to what I think the standard should be, their own personal standard. That's a problem. That's not going uh, to work. We need to be bound to something whereby uh, we discern hey, this is good or this is bad in terms of this understanding, this expression of what Scripture teaches. Uh, That's not to say that a confessional document is going to be sufficient. It's not. Scripture's sufficient. But, uh, and, and so I'd be one of those who would say, you know, we're, we're getting closer to the time when the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 does need to be updated. Uh, I don't think that'll be for a little while yet, but we will eventually reach that point. Um, in, in any event, you can see that on our own, on our website there. If you, if you go to uh, the tab there under statements, uh, you'll see that we affirm the abstract of principles, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, the Danvers Statement, and the Nashville Statement. Statement, because we do believe that these are true expressions of what Scripture teaches on these issues that the documents touch on. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit there I'd like to follow up on. The first is the point about confessionalism, which I appreciate, uh, just if only in the sense of binding yourself to a tradition that kind of grounds your own perspective in a historical context. I think that's helpful. Uh, it's not certainly not uh, you know equivalent with a need to be grounded in Scripture, but it's sort of a nice bolstering support to the grounding uh, of one's thought in Scripture. So to make the point crystal clear, or maybe more fine, you are very much open to the idea that the Baptist faith and message should be modified maybe to a address new challenges or, uh, if they're not new challenges, challenges presenting themselves under a new face. Uh, You're open to modifying the document if the denomination is willing to do so. Uh, However, we need to start the conversation at the confessional level. Am I understanding you correctly there? 
I think that's right. I mean, I would prefer to start it at the scriptural level, but we understand, too, that uh, there really are such things as secondary and tertiary matters, right? I mean, sure. your church probably doesn't do everything exactly the same way as, as the church that I'm at. But uh, and, and there's also a fine line to walk there. Um, in, in fact, I can use as an illustration, I believe, uh, Al Mohler. Uh, I have, you know, he worked on that Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and there has been uh, a suggestion, for example, uh, from the floor in Birmingham, there was a motion made to modify the language in the section regarding pastors so that the function of pastors is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. Uh, and the reason for that uh, is that we have seen instances of churches where uh, women are not being called by the title pastor, but nevertheless are functioning as such. Now, on the other side, on the other hand, we also have women in Southern Baptist churches who are being called by the title of pastor. It's usually pastor of something. Um, but anyway, so that's that's a whole issue there. And so I think that there we could stand to have some more clarity there in that section of the Baptist faith and message. This is a controversy, a, a current controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think it's a meaningful one. I think there's a, a big pragmatic argument to be made here uh, in terms of whether or not we can cooperate. For example, a church uh, that disagrees with women teaching men uh, in the corporate worship context uh, may not want to give to a cooperative body or give through a cooperative body that will go plant churches where women are doing that. But they don't believe in that. They don't believe it's scriptural. They have a conscience issue with it. And so that can actually harm the giving through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is essentially why it exists, right? So uh, so there are concerns there, and I think that clarifying the doctrinal statement would, the statement of faith there, would help. The problem is, uh, and I think that this is where someone like Moeller would stand, and I'm not just making this up because uh, he said this in an interview uh, not long ago. The problem is that if we go tweaking this document constantly through these amendments and whatnot, we've essentially undermined the point of confessionalism. So it, there's a sense in which our confessions need to be difficult uh, to rewrite or to amend. Uh, but I do think that it does need to be re rewritten. It does need to be amended at some point uh, in the near future. Uh, and maybe that'll be sooner than we think. I, I don't know. Okay. Well, again, so much good there. I, I particularly appreciate your your note that you'd like to begin at the point of Scripture, which is the obvious ground of authority and revelation. Uh, it, it's that the Baptist faith and message functions as sort of what our it's a summary of what our denomination believes the Bible to teach, and so um, that that's why I went to the question about modifying uh, the document, and you answered that very helpfully. Another thing you just did for us was laying out a vision for the CRV website, and uh, it, it's a crowded landscape in some ways uh, when you think about websites that are looking at publishing about the goings-on of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, maybe you'd say, I don't have anything else to add to what I've just laid out. But in that world of websites looking at the Southern Baptist Convention, what do you think is distinctly offered by the CRV uh, website and podcast and, and effort? 
Yeah, I think that we want to champion those who are convictionally, theologically conservative. Uh, we want to champion their message anyway, right? Because one of the problems, I think, that we have been facing recently and in the past uh, is is that when the character of some individuals is undermined uh, in terms of uh, those who have been promoting these principles, uh, people see that and they want to reject the message as well. What we want to say is uh, we need to continue to promote these principles regardless of those who uh, who are saying these things. But we're, we're champion, championing uh, this ideology of, of theological conservatism. We, we believe that's a good thing. We believe it's true. Uh, we believe that it's good for churches and for the Southern Baptist Convention. It's good for missions. It's good for academics. It's good for uh, teaching to our pastors and, and leading our people. Um, and so that's all a good thing, and we need to cling very closely to that. Uh, and not just pragmatically, it, it is scriptural. <laughs> it's it's uh, entailed by Scripture itself. And so, uh, yeah, we want to do that. We want to champion those who are, are putting out this conservative message, or at least the message itself. Uh, and we do that by, by finding, by having eyes on folks who are pressing back against what we view as uh, a potential slip into theological liberalism. And that doesn't always uh, happen in terms of theological liberalism itself, right? That can look like syncretism. Uh, that can look like uh, the conciliatory approach that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, that can look uh, like a different, a lot of different manifestations of, of this rejection uh, of Scripture. That's what our hearts, our natural, fleshly, sinful hearts are inclined toward anyway. We need to recognize that. Not There, there aren't these tribes, and some are sealed off from this error because that's not true. Uh, we're all sinful, and we all go looking for these sorts of things. So, so that's one of the things. Um, but we also we want to offer a positive message. We are for the Southern Baptist Convention. We are for the cooperative program. We are for theologically conservative education and missions uh, as we uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not against the Southern Baptist Convention. We're not against her institutions. We're not against her entities. Uh, we're not against other people. Uh, we are for them, and uh, we want to to push that forward in a positive sense, offering uh, doctrinal distinctives as well as uh, some historical uh, connections and whatnot that fill out this story, really, of the conservative resurgence and its applications for today. But we also do want to be on guard and, and have kind of that uh, negative or defensive posture uh, towards some of the things that we view as very real problems. Uh, again, there's a lot of this scoffing that goes on. Um, people will get to a place where they believe themselves to be conservative. Uh, they they think they are thinking in that way, but they want to hold their own camp accountable. And so what they do is they turn their scoffing uh, inward toward those who are theological conservatives. Uh, they are sarcastic. They are dismissive of any concerns that something might be going on. That's a that's a bad thing. Uh, they're dismissive of doctrinal concerns. Uh, and, and if you do that for so long, uh, you'll find 
find that you're actually sliding to the left. Uh, and that's how these things come about. It's claiming the moral high ground and losing the doctrinal ground, and that ultimately undermines your moral high ground as well. Uh, it is particularly interesting, and I may write something up on this, that you often see people talk about holding their own camp accountable in terms of morality, but you very uh, rarely see people talking about holding their own camp accountable in terms of doctrine. Uh, and so that's one of the things that this site serves to hopefully help uh, rectify. Well, then last question, and thank you for being so generous with your time. Why a podcast then? So we there's a website, there's text available on it to read, there's lots of uh, links to other good material. Uh, how does a podcast serve the aims of, of the conservative resurgence voices effort? Yeah, well, podcasts are uh, certainly the, the thing now, aren't they? They're more popular and people enjoy listening to a podcast when they might not read a blog post. Uh, blogging has been considered somewhat outdated and, uh, and different people, they say, learn in different ways. Some people prefer podcasts over uh, blog posts. And so we want to get our message out there uh, however we can. And podcasts also uh, give us the opportunity to interact with others, uh, whether they see eye to eye with us on everything or not. Of course, not even the contributors to the site, as you know, not even the contributors to the site see eye to eye on every little jot and tittle. But uh, but we're, we're fairly much in line with uh, wanting to present this positive message while uh, making sure that we're defending the faith and, and doing Doing so in a way that's pleasing to God, uh, glorifying to Him, and helpful to others. Doing so in a way that's actually loving and for our uh, Southern Baptist Convention, rather than just wanting to tear it down or see it fail. We don't want that at all. Uh, and so this podcast makes a, uh, sets us up such that we're able to interview some different voices who have been speaking to these topics. Um, folks who might ordinarily not be writing for us, but might be willing to come on a podcast and talk to us about some of the different issues that we're dealing with uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Excellent. So if I ask you, who do you hope listens to the podcast? I'm assuming you're going to say pastors, uh, laymen and laywomen, um, even, you know, uh, people in other denominations who sort of have a solidarity with conservative theologians or uh, conservative believers outside of their own tradition. Is there anybody else that you're hope that you're hoping will be listening to this podcast? Well, uh, we know that some of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention have been reading some of our material here at the website already. And so I would hope that they might tune into one of the podcasts uh, as well, if it's a topic that interests them or addresses something that they've been tied up in uh, at some point. Uh, certainly, I think, uh, you know, pastors being able to listen to these more easily than going and digging through more texts. Pastors read a lot, as you know, and so it's nice to be able to go out for a job and listen to a podcast instead. Um, but I, I think the parties that you hit upon there uh, are, are essentially our, our listening audience for something like this. But it's also the case, as you mentioned, that it'll be across denominational lines. Uh, even though we're concerned with Southern Baptist Convention, this is a very Southern Baptist uh, website, uh, and there's an entire culture that comes along with that. Uh, at the same time, the things that we're seeing are, are across denominational lines, and oftentimes you'll see that uh, reflected on the website as well that we're drawing from non-SBC sources. It's marked out when that's the case. Uh, it'll explicitly say non-SBC, but they're nevertheless dealing with some of the same things that we're dealing with in the Southern Baptist Convention and, and vice versa. 
Okay. Well, wonderful. Again, I want to thank you for your time. Listener, if you happen to encounter this, apart from knowing what uh, the Conservative Resurgence Voices website is, it is found at crvoices.org. It is also available. The content there is linked to on Twitter. The Twitter handle is voices underscore CR. If you're on Facebook, there's a Facebook page, and it is at facebook.com forward slash voices CR. We're all over the place, and we hope you will engage with the content we're putting out. Chris, before we go, uh, where can where can listeners find you on social media if they want to connect with you more directly? Yeah, I'm taking a break at the moment, but normally you can find me uh, at CL Bolt on Twitter. Uh, that's at CL Bolt. Uh, you can find me on Parlor as well, and you can find me here and there on the internet. Okay. Well, thank you. And listener, I hope you'll do that. Uh, for my part, I'm at Right Jeff on most every social media platform, and we are thankful that you took a moment to listen to us here today as uh, as we're trying to lay out a vision for the future of the Conservative Resurgence Voices podcast. Until we speak again, we wish you all the best in the name of Jesus Christ. I'll talk to you next time.